Radio Show brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence and background checks available, unprospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you again for joining me here on the Talent Talk Radio Show. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host here for the next hour. We have a really good lineup of guests today, and I know the rest of the year we've got uh, some tremendous people lined up and hope that you uh, choose to tune in to listen to them uh, throughout the year. Uh, In case this is the very first time that you are stumbling upon our little show here, let me explain to you how it works. The Talent Talk Radio Show features a wide range of guests who care about talent management, leadership development, and company culture. So in the business world, talent really has a couple different meanings, and we really try to focus in on two of them. The first is how it relates to success and how really talented people achieve uh, that success. And the second is how uh, talent relates to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates for their company. Typically, we find that those most talented people are are also our our top HR leaders as well. So a lot of crossover there. But this show looks to explore these two different areas along with how these talented individuals impact a company's culture, something that I'm always fascinated about. Uh, The guests that we have on the show typically are CEOs, HR execs, entrepreneurs, coaches, authors, uh, just some fantastic people from just about every industry you can think of. And what usually happens is I'm at a networking event or a conference or maybe even stumble upon the, somebody on LinkedIn, and I, I had the privilege of meeting these people, and I created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue and hopefully learn some practical advice that will help you cultivate talent and develop those leaders and manage that culture uh, that you're struggling to deal with every single day, but most importantly, to hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. So hopefully at least something today you take away and you can implement um, within your own life or your company, uh, and that's really what we're looking to do. I want to thank those of you who are tuning in live here every Tuesday. Don't forget, you can uh, tweet a question uh, to one of my guests by uh, sending it to at peopleg2. If you've got room, uh, use that hashtag, Talent Talk, and my producer, Mike, will try to feed me the best questions, and we'll work them into the show. But you can also send us uh, general suggestions and guest suggestions, anything else you think would be great for the show. We'd love to hear it. Uh, finally, don't forget, you can tune into this show via a podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app. Um, you can also go to talenttalkradio.com. There really is no excuse. You can get it just about anywhere uh, if you're looking for it. We have all different ways for you to download this show, past shows, and tune in to listen uh, to the ones that interest you and skip the ones that don't. But we're really proud now to be syndicated with iHeartRadio, so uh, those of you who are on Android as well can use that app to, to listen to past shows. So let's go ahead and get uh, to today's show. My first guest here with me in the studio. It's been a little while since we've had someone live in the studio, a lot of great remote guests, so it's nice to have someone actually sitting across from me. Uh, Dr. Karen Robinson, the VP of HR of Resources for Exemplus Corporation, and Rob Wagner, the VP of Employee Engagement Strategy for BI Worldwide, and he's also a New York Times bestselling author. He'll join me at the second half of the show. Uh, I look forward to speaking to him then, but let's go ahead and dive in with Karen. Karen, Karen, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and, of course, what your company does. 
Um, sure. Um, so I started out my career in HR um, about 15 years ago. Uh, my first position was uh, as a research assistant in the recruiting department for um, what was then called Booz Allen Hamilton. Um, since then, I spent um, you know the bulk of my career um, in the organizational development space. Um, so working with kind of large Fortune 500 companies in the areas of organizational development, change management, um, organization design, um, those types of things. Before really moving into kind of more HR leadership type roles, I've been in in kind of the HR executive space now for. Um, about five years, um, and I just joined uh, the Exemplus Company uh, here in Orange County uh, back in November of, of, of last year. So you're rolling in about a year here uh, as the VP of HR, and I know you're kind of directly responsible for all those different HR activities, which obviously incorporates a lot of different HR areas. So what do you you know what what do you find to be the most challenging area, and maybe what's the most rewarding area as well that you might talk about? Sure. Well, I think one of the the most challenging, particularly over the past couple of years, have, has really been the external environment. I mean, both with some of the regulatory um, conditions that we're dealing with, whether it's uh, the Affordable Care Act or some of the decisions that have come out of some of the federal agencies, like even uh, the big decision out of the NRLRB last week. Um, those have, have certainly added to kind of the complexity. I think also, too, coming out of the recession, um, dealing with the labor market conditions, you know, unemployment's close to five percent nationally when you look at here in orange county um, it's closer to four point four point one percent i think based on the last numbers i saw that just adds to the the challenge that you have around hiring and and acquiring new talent and Mm -hmm. and bringing new folks into the organization Um, so i think again dealing with kind of the external conditions right now has been uh, particularly challenging uh, of late but at the end of the day, I think that, you know, what's most rewarding about being in HR and, and reason uh, the reason why I really went into HR in the first place is um, being able to find those solutions to help a business support their talent and, and vice versa. I think you can really find a lot of synergy between uh, what employees are looking for in an organization and what employees want out of a out of an employer, as well as what businesses need to help drive their strategies forward. Um, and if you can find that right balance, um, that, that's just a pretty exciting place to be. Yeah, so. if, you, if you can find that balance. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when yeah. it comes to the strategic role that you know, you're filling for your company, what do you feel is the most important areas you know, that HR strategy really comes into play? Yeah. And, you know, my roots, again, are, are, are primarily in organizational development. You know, my degrees in, in industrial organizational psychology. So I'm a big fan of, of the role HR can play in organizational design. So really helping organizations look at their structure um, a little bit more holistically and really how the people side of that fits into the structure and the systems and, and the processes of the organization. I think sometimes in HR that can be a hard place to, to play in. Um, you know, I think to some Sometimes uh, a lot of HR folks get uh, bogged down in kind of the day-to-day tactical stuff. Right. But I think, it, you know, if you can create this space to work with your executive team around um, those org design principles, I think really that's where HR can play um, a, a huge value add for an organization. And really what you're kind of referring to is some of the, the structure or even maybe the skeleton, right, of, of, of what makes up you know, the the real foundation for the organization. But then there's all this other touchy-feely stuff and squishy things that we might call company culture, you know, that really comes from the personalities and the and I guess the whims and the desires of of, of every employee that kind of collectively brings something together. So how would you maybe talk about what's the company culture like? If you were 
maybe explaining this to someone who's brand new coming on the organization you want to kind of mm-hmm. fill them in how, how would you how would you explain that yeah and you know in particular to exemplus you know um, we're a, a mid-size organization um, our CEO is one of the original founders of the company um, and he really drives and sets the tone for the culture um, he, he's he's famous for saying he runs his his organization like a professional sports team um, and, and I think that's uh, that analogy is really apt you know I think we're expected to show up we're expected to kind of play the part of a corporate athlete um, to some degree um, know our position and execute it flawlessly um, as well as really work together to achieve the organization's goals um, I think having that mindset and that culture really helps us to kind of stay competitive um, and stay driven to the market um, so that we can can, uh, can continue to grow and continue to have the success that we've had at Exemplus. Yeah, yeah. And and talk about some of that success. I mean, you, you, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier. You guys had some pretty strong growth over the last five years. Well, maybe we yeah. can talk a little bit, go a little deeper with that. Sure. Um, so Exemplus, and, and uh, for those of you listening who, who haven't heard of Exemplus before, so we're a mid-market uh, office furniture manufacturer. We're one of the largest providers of um, office seating in that kind of mid-market space. Um, and we've been growing at a fairly rapid pace over about the last five years. So on average, about 20% year over year. So pretty tremendous growth for a company that size. Um, and we continue to to see that growth forecasted out as, as we look forward. So being able to, to understand our culture and, and understand what drives us and keeps us successful is important for us going forward. And, and, and you know, to that again, how do you, or maybe what are some of the expectations and of leadership to really ensure that there is that consistency with the culture that you have the right modeling, you have the right things. It's one thing for your CEO to say it. It's another thing for everyone else below them to really drive home that message from, you know, yeah. from team to team, department to department. Yeah, and great question. I think it's particularly important for you know, smaller companies or even mid-sized companies that are growing. Because um, when you're small, you know, it can be very relationship-based. It can be very informal. Um, but as you grow, you need to be a little bit more intentional about how you kind of look at that culture, how you sustain that culture. So some of the things that, that we're doing as we're continuing to kind of experience this growth is trying to kind of capture and document those things that make us uh, special or that make us different from, from other organizations and, and our competition. So we've been very focused on, you know, looking at our company values and, and updating them and making sure that they really do reflect um, the organization and what the organization believes in. Um, we've just put in place over the past year a new competency model so that we're, we can set expectations for what we look for both in our, um, our employees but as well as in our leadership positions. And then we've worked to build out a, a management model that kind of housed that. So it sets the expectations around how those values and those competencies show up in the day-to-day work, and then ultimately how individuals are going to be held accountable to those. Does some of that kind of go into your overall talent management um, kind of you know philosophy? I mean, if you have the right things in place, it's easier to keep people. So I'm kind of maybe wondering a little bit, how do you find the right people and then, you know, are there some other things that you're doing to keep them as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Those things play into that and into, into a big deal. We absolutely use our, our values and our competencies, both on the front end to screen people that we're looking to bring into the organization, but also using them to evaluate the folks that we have on staff today. Um, so we leverage those at really all points in our talent management philosophy, whether it's hiring, um, development, um, succession planning, uh, leadership development, all of those different aspects. I think the other thing that's really important when we look at it from a talent acquisition perspective is really making sure that we're telling our story. Um, you know, we've got a really great story coming out of um, the recession. We are in, in this kind of rapid growth mold, uh, mode. 
which really I think appeals to a lot of folks coming out of the the recession. You know, there's there's been you know a lot of people who have gone through you know numerous layoffs and and a lot of mm-hmm. tough conditions and things like that. And so being able to tell the story from the Exemplus's team's perspective on growth and opportunity, um, just that alone can help generate some excitement in, in potential talent. Um, and I think that also uh, relates to folks that we're trying to retain. Um, it is an exciting time to be a part of our company, um, and we need to make sure that we're continuing to tell that story to our own employees as well as celebrating those successes along the way. Yeah, that's that's, that's great stuff. And I, you know, I mean, early in that your response, you mentioned uh, succession planning. So, uh, so, you know, since you brought it up, what sort of things are, are you guys doing to be successful in that area? Yeah. And I think with succession planning, you know, we struggle with a lot of the things that a lot of companies our size struggle with. It's really hard to have a deep talent bench when you're relatively flat as an organization. Um, and, and while we have some opportunities to put in some layers and make sure that we have um, successors I- inside the organization, um, it becomes very difficult um, when you kind of look at the succession plan overall. So a couple of things that, that we've been working on um, specific to, you know, focusing on what our critical needs are. So knowing we, we you know, potentially can't have redundancy and clear successors in every part of the organization, let's figure out what our, our main priorities are and where our biggest risks are, um, mm-hmm. and let's look to, to add some support in those areas. I think also for mid-sized corporations, it, it's important that you look externally when you're doing your succession plan. So it's not about just um, identifying successors inside the organization, but looking out in the talent marketplace, building those relationships outside, and making sure that you have one or two folks that are out in the in, in the network, in the area, that you can reach out to should you need uh, expertise in a particular area. Well, and that's a fantastic tip. In fact, we've seen people try to build businesses around this idea. That if you have a few people in mind, right, you don't have to necessarily have your next CFO sitting inside of your company right now. But if you know that your CFO now may you know, retire or move on in the next year or two years, if you've already started to identify that person and have talks and relationships and they know who you are. When it's time to move, the chances are you're going to have a much better plan and a much better chance of success. And the least amount of right, problems or, you know, kind of impact to the company by doing that. And you may have two or three or four. At, for a position like that, you may have quite a, a, a little pool of people that you're really looking at, right? Right, absolutely. And, and that's really the idea is that particularly, again, in a smaller company, you're never going to have the redundancy and the depth of talent that you're going to have in a company that's got hundreds of thousands of employees. So it's leveraging your networks a little bit more effectively. It's leveraging external partners um, a little bit more effectively. And again, it's having those people that are out in the marketplace that you you know talk to on a regular basis that you've identified as potentially someone um, to talk to should you you need to pull additional talent into the organization. Well, and that's a really uh, important thing you're kind of mentioning because when you start off as a small company, pretty much everyone is redundant to everyone. Everyone understands how to do the, the jobs. You're all pitching in. You're all kind of running around wherever the fire is, right, and trying mm-hmm. to collectively trying to, to solve the problem. And then as you grow, well, you know, people have their specific jobs and you need to do that less, but there's still some of that and there's still that knowledge base in the company, right? Because you started, but as you get to that medium size level, it's still, I see a lot of companies where that is the the fallback, right? They think that they can still do that. They still have that, but, and you're not so big where you just decide, well, we'll just hire you know, we'll just go out and find the best person because we're the biggest name on the block and we can attract that person easily. So you're kind of in the middle where it's not conducive to keep doing that, but yet 
you're probably competing against players, much larger players, maybe not even exactly the same industry, but just large players for those executives and those people that you need, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's really how we look at it. I mean, I think our primary uh, competition for talent are the large companies here in Orange County and, and nationally to some degree. Um, and really, that's the type of talent that we try to target and bring into Exemplus so that we're preparing ourselves for that um, continued growth and that we're really positioning ourselves to have the right people and processes and systems in place so that as we continue to grow, it becomes less and less of a risk for us. Right, right. I imagine one of those real important things that you need within your company to, to do that and to really foster all that is trust. So uh, are there some things that you guys do specifically? Maybe you can talk about you know, how trust is earned and developed and kind of you know, uh, massaged as a company culture type of a thing. Yeah, and I think um, particularly with smaller organizations, trust is key, right? And, and like I mentioned, you know, our CEO is the owner of the company, and, and you know, he needs to trust everybody that works for on his team, and, and we need to trust him. And so, it's really critical to the ongoing success of the organization. You know, and again, it's one of those things when you're small, you can really be very relationship based. You know everybody really well, um, and, and trust is somewhat easier. Um, I think as you grow, you've got to get a little bit more. Um, sophisticated in how you kind of document it and, and process it and set expectations so that you can maintain that trust uh, within the culture. Um, to some of the specific things we've done with Exemplus, again, kind of uh, pointing back to our values, is just making sure that trust is embedded in, in a number of our different values so that it's it's kind of set up front when you come into the organization that this is an expectation and, and um, being able to trust each other is really critical to our success. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I know that, you know, Sometimes with an organization your size, uh, leadership development can can be a challenge because you may not have quite the exact people that you want, or you may not have the programs that maybe a Fortune 500 company might have to send people back to pay for their school, or you know to start some of that process to develop people. So, how are you guys really cha- you know going after that challenging issue of making sure that you're identifying new leaders, they have the education they need, they have the skills that they need so that you can bring people from inside and move them up. Yeah, and it's a little bit of a balance of, of just making sure that when you have the opportunity, you can bring in that skill set from the outside so that you can bring bring that talent in and then share that out with the organization. Um, you know, we do struggle, as, as a lot of uh, kind of smaller or mid-sized companies do, with just resources around leadership development. So we try to take um, more of a, a focus of, of, you know, where can we get those quick wins? Um, where can we... Um, you know, either uh, institutionalize some of our practices or processes, whether it's our values and competencies or, again, our management model, so that the foundation is there. Um, and then find those opportunities where we can maybe bring in a, a speaker to talk to our management team about a particular topic or um, launch a small training program for those who need a, a particular skill set. Again, being as effective as we can in terms of partnering with our external um, vendors and things like that so we can get the most uh, return for our investment in those training dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know you, you mentioned you're kind of joining the company last year in November, so coming up on your year anniversary. And sometimes it, when you have an anniversary like that, you can maybe go back and reflect a little bit and say, what, 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 what do I still need to work on? What are still some of the things that the organization can really benefit from? I mean, have you started to identify those things that you think the company really still needs to work on to, to get to that next level? 
Yeah, and I will say, you know, one of our biggest challenges as an organization is, again, kind of coming through that rapid growth um, is really making sure that our infrastructure is being built out at a fast enough pace to to support the growth. So from, from my seat in HR, um, one of the things that we're trying to do is just be proactive. So when we go out and we look at um, a system that we need to implement, it's not just the system that we need for today, but it's really that system that we're going to need five years from now when we're double in size. Right. So it's trying to just have that forethought around, again, systems and tools and structure that are going to help us be successful, not only today, but something that we can continue to leverage as we grow so that, you know, five years from now, we're not going back and redoing the same projects all over again. Right, right. And that's, and that's very smart. And uh, we, we certainly have picked up that you're, you are a very smart person. You've gone to great, great length of school being a doctor now. And from a personal standpoint, I'm wondering you know, what kind of inspired you? Is there some somebody or something that kind of inspired you to go down this track to become, you know, kind of this lifelong learner and to really, you know, take it to the to the level that you have to really understand HR to this you know extent? Um, yeah, great question. And, you know, I think from my perspective, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of good leaders um, over the years, a number of bad leaders as well. Um, and, and I think you have to just kind of take what you can from each person that you meet along the way and, and figure out. You know, everybody has value that they add, and, and what can you learn from that, and what can you incorporate back into your own leadership style, your own personal um, approach to things that kind of make you that uh, that much better or, or that much uh, more of a learner. You know, I think from an education perspective, I'd have to say my mom was really the person that inspired me to um, get my PhD. It was something that had been important to her that she wasn't able to do, um, that she passed along to me. Um, so that was something that she always supported and, and uh, inspired me to do. Um, you know, I also had a, a number of really great mentors along the way that, um, again, you know, I was able to pick up little things from um, and incorporate into to my own career. I had one mentor that told me um, at one point that you really have to think of yourself as having infinite capacity um, and, and really having that mindset to say yes to opportunities and be open to opportunities as they come along. Um, and that's always been one piece of advice that's just kind of stuck with me through the years. I know there's probably a lot of self-help books out there that tell you you got to learn to say no. Right. Um, but I've always been a big believer in, in just uh, saying yes and being open to um, opportunities as they come along. Well, saying yes is great. You yeah. then have to say, okay, well, now I'm doing this new thing. I have to get rid of this <laughs> other stuff, right? You have to still, you know, you can't just take on everything. But I think that's good advice to be able to, you know, you can do it. Because people are sometimes are afraid of doing something new or I think I've heard that quote. You know, if someone asks you to do it, even if you don't know how, just say yes and figure it out, right? I mean, that's at least you can learn something new, and don't worry that you don't necessarily have everything figured out yet. Right, and and that's just it. It forces you to continue to learn. It forces you to continue to take, you know, hopefully smart risks along the way, um, and, and uh, continue to find out that you can do things that you probably never thought you could. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you mentioned your mom kind of it being important to her that you went and, and got that PhD. So. What, what, what was driving that? Why was that important for her? So she was someone who was ABD, so she did all of her um, doctoral uh, coursework up to the dissertation and just unfortunately for a variety of reasons at the time wasn't able to finish. So it was something that, um, you know, she, uh, when I first started my doctorate program, that she uh, was very passionate about supporting me through the process and making sure that I finished. So. Well, it's too bad she yeah. didn't finish her own, but I guess it's glad that you were able to do that and get yeah. that support from her. So Absolutely. You know, uh, one of our favorite questions to ask our guests, um, and you may have already read enough books that you don't want to read anymore, but are, are you reading a book right now that you might share with us? 
Um, sure, yeah. And I actually, um, so every summer I, I kind of take the summer off and, and try to focus on a summer uh, reading list that's more fun and, and mm-hmm. kind of go back to um, the bestsellers from the year. And so I actually just finished uh, reading Wild by Sh- uh, Cheryl Strayed, okay. uh, which is an excellent book. Um, if you haven't read it or um, if you don't want to read it, you can go see the movie. I haven't seen the movie yet. but <laughs> Yeah, I haven't either, but I heard it's a really good book. Uh, my, my wife is an avid reader. If she's not holding two books at one time and reading constantly, it's you know unusual. So uh, I know she really liked that one. And, and we have a lot of our guests that will do just what you said, kind of take the summer to have read different types of books. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have people that come in and they only read autobiographies or they only read science books or you know, all these different things. That we, I tend to fall into that typical business self-help genre, right? But right. it's always fun to, to, to get outside of that and look at some of those different ones. You know, as you, you've been here, you kind of talked a lot of, you had some really good things that you've brought up. Uh, and I'm wondering if you were could summarize, what do you think was the best takeaway that, that you talked about today that somebody might want to go back and think about? Yeah, I, you know, I think the most important thing for, for really anyone, but particularly for those working in HR, is just to be open to the outside network. Um, you know, whether you work in, in smaller organizations or large corporations, um, you know, being in tune with what's happening in other organizations, uh, finding out from your network um, best practices, uh, where to look for resources, all of those things, I think, has helped me be um, pretty successful in my own career. And I think it's just important to be able to stay in touch with what's happening in the marketplace, uh, what's happening out um, in other organizations so that you can better serve your own organization. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if people are interested in checking out your company or want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to, to do that? Yeah, I would definitely encourage uh, anyone to check uh, either myself out on LinkedIn or um, the Exemplus uh, page on LinkedIn. There's a ton of information there about our company and about our open positions that we have. Um, and, and I'm pretty active on LinkedIn myself, so if anybody wants to connect, I'd be happy to. And if you are spelling challenged like me, the company is spelled E-X-E-M-P-L-I-S, correct? Yep, that's All right, correct. Good. And I even said it correctly, so I'm... I, I guess I keep my nickel. Uh, Paul likes to bet me that I'm going to mess up somebody's <laughs> name. So, Well, Karen, it was a real pleasure having you on the show, and hopefully we have you come back at some point and give us an update on how you're doing and how the company's growing. Great. Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate it. All right. Up next, we'll have Rod Wagner, who will join me after this brief commercial break. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, 
Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Town Talk Radio Show. As a reminder, if you have any uh, questions you'd like to ask my next guest, uh, just send them to at peopleg2. Pop in that question, and if there's room, add the hashtag, ta- uh, hashtag Talent Talk, and we'll try to work them into the show. Uh, if you're interested in uh, checking out past episodes or you'd like to re-listen to this one, you can go to talenttalkradio.com. You can go to the iHeartRadio app or the uh, podcasting app if you have uh, an Apple device. The iHeart one can be with any device. And you can check out past shows and listen to anyone else who's of interest to you. So we really appreciate everyone who's tuning in. We're just over 190,000 of you who tuned in and downloaded the podcast last week. So we really appreciate all your support and coming back to, to hear all these great guests. So speaking of great guests, my next one uh, is Rod Wagner. He's the VP of Employee Engagement Strategy for BI Worldwide and also a best-selling author. So, uh, Rod, welcome to the show. Chris, great to be with you. So tell everyone here about a little bit about yourself and about your company. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a journalist by initial training, a, a journalist who became frustrated with the way the newspapers he worked for were being run. And so I decided to go back to school, picked up an MBA, and have focused since then on what really makes the people side of the equation work. Been at it long enough that I've gotten to go to some really cool places, spent a day on a U.S. Navy submarine, and got to go on a U.S. Navy uh, carrier at one point, and uh, I'm now at the point where half the time when I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, reading a, a story in the Wall Street Journal, I've either been to that company or I've been to its competitor, and I often know the story behind the story, which is which is kind of fun. Uh, BI Worldwide is a global engagement agency. What we do uniquely is not just develop the strategies for our clients, but help them execute it. We're, we are global, uh, and we have offices in, in Canada, Australia, China, United Kingdom, Latin America, uh, you name it. But, but we really get a charge out of taking the strategies that we advise our clients on and turning them into the kind of platforms and systems that allow frontline managers uh, to bring that to life. And, and as I mentioned, you're also a uh, New York Times bestselling author, and You've written a few books, but maybe we could talk about, you could share a little bit about your most recent book, uh, Widgets, the 12 New Rules of Managing Your Employees as If They're Real People. Uh, what are some of the highlights or the, maybe the, kind of the, the basic premise here you'd like people to, to know and understand if they want to check that book out? Well, the impetus for writing widgets was all the things that had changed really around the recession, but some not related to the to the recession, just happened to be uh, coincidences of social media, for example. It had nothing to do with the recession, but kind of came into the fore right around that time. Uh, the millennials coming into the workplace, the tremendous changes that had occurred when suddenly, instead of more people resigning, there were more people being laid off. Uh, we put all those together, and in the early stages, uh, we were wondering, what, did this change the unwritten social contract between an employee and employer? Had things changed so much that you would really say there, there are really new rules around managing and new rules that, that leaders and managers needed to follow if they were going to get the most from their people? And uh, the answer was yes. In, in fact, things had changed quite dramatically, and a lot of things that we had that we had taken for granted or assumed to be uh, were no longer true. 
So we spent a couple of years doing some research, doing some, what I would argue is some, some provocative and, and groundbreaking research around that, and ultimately emerged with 12 new rules for managing employees as if they're real people, is the way we put it on the subtitle of the book. Well, and we certainly have seen, you know, just a few noticeable things around that area that, you know, large companies will lay off people to make their numbers, and people will now no longer choose to stay with one company their entire career. So it, it, it makes a lot of sense that just on those two big ideas, and I'm sure there's hundreds more to, to consider, there probably is some new rules uh, that people might uh, think about. And if, if I remember correctly from some of the things we looked at, um, one of those topics is really around leaders you know, struggling to really affirm employee, an employee or, or the people that they're managing. So especially in a way that provides them with a sense of value to the organization of the company. Uh, is, is that kind of what you're seeing, or are you, you know, does it go deeper than that? Well, that's absolutely true, and it, it goes to the first rule, get inside their heads. Uh, we live in a world of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, there's a – people publicize themselves much more than previous generations did, and there's an expectation that employees will be known for the individuals they are. Uh, and, and so that's the first rule. But it's the gateway to all the other rules that someone has a manager who really understands him or her and matches that employee with the resources of the organization that allow them to really um, reach their potential there. If, if I might, I'll go through the, the 12 rules in, in quick succession. Sure, let's, let, are, let's hit them. Yeah, uh, the first rule is get inside their heads, what I just mentioned. The second is make them fearless. After the recession, everything, what it means to be fearless is is different now than it used to be. Uh, compensation gets discussed all the time. What we found in our research is that you have to make money a non-issue. The fourth rule has to work be, it, it has to do with work-life balance. Uh, we call it help them thrive. The fifth rule is be cool. Uh, the sixth is be boldly transparent. Quite frankly, you're going to have information come out, so you might as well be transparent with social media these days. Seventh rule is don't kill the meaning. Uh, we are we, we naturally gravitate towards meaning, but there's things that companies can do that kind of kill that natural meaning that we have. Uh, the eighth rule is see their future. People want to know where they're going, even if it's not with their current employer. The ninth is magnify their success. We need recognition if we're going to work our hardest. The tenth is unite them. There are certain ways to build a team and certain ways that you have infighting. And we talk, I talk about that in the chapter. The eleventh rule is let them lead. People don't want to just have their opinions count. They really want to have a chance to show what they can do. And the 12th rule is take it to extremes. You know, we live in a, in a day of X games and wingsuits and bungee jumping and parachuting and all these crazy things that people do. And they, that's what they watch on TV. They run uh, extreme races on the weekends. When they come into work, they want to do something that is uh, an extreme accomplishment uh, that, they, that they can claim as well. Well, that's all. That sounds fantastic. And sometimes giving away all your best stuff is the best way to get people to read it. Because now, and I really want to read the whole book because a lot of those things sound really fascinating, um, and uh, some great kind of crossover to some really great ideas that have been happening in the last few years. Uh, it seems like that'd be a, a fantastic book for anyone to check out who's maybe leading employees or heading up a company. They might want to to start to digest some of those things. Um, you know, speaking of giving things away, one of the things we decided to give away for free was was um, the uh, the assessment. We we needed to build this assessment to do the research, and we needed to build this assessment to assist our clients 
and it was just not that much skin off our noses to post this on the website and let anyone, no catch, no, at the end of it, it doesn't say, hey, for five bucks, want to buy this. On the website, widgetsthebook.com, uh, any individual can go there and after answering 36 key questions and a few other the others that are sprinkled in there, it takes about four or five minutes, uh, an individual can find out his or her new rules index, where how their job compares to everyone else's job in the United States. So if, if you come out with an index number of 50, it means you like your job about average. But if you come out with uh, an index number of 90, that means your job is working for you better than 90, 90% of the people out there's job is working for them. Well, that sounds like a great assessment anybody could take to at least get a somewhat of a gauge or a feel for where they're at. Um, sometimes you might think you, your job is not so great. You might take one that. You might find out compared to everybody else you're doing pretty good or uh, I guess vice versa. You may not really understand how good it is if, if you don't have you know, sometimes those indicators to help you understand uh, what the rest of the marketplace is really yielding for people. Yeah, and in fact, having built the assessment one night, I was up at about 1 a.m., 1.30, 2 o'clock. I was exhausted. And I had built the assessment, and I thought, I don't know, am I going to learn anything from the assessment? I thought, well, why, why, I should take my own medicine. Let's see what happens. And I figured I was just going to come in about 50, 55 or so. So I took the assessment before I went to bed, and uh, turned out that I was in the high 70s. And the only problem was my work-life balance. Surprise, surprise! I'm up in the middle of the night. Right. But everything else is it a cool company? Yes. Do do my uh, opinions are they taken seriously? Do I get the chance to lead? Am I accomplishing great things? Yeah. All the way. To, is, is this meaningful? Yeah. Absolutely. But go to bed. You know, to take get some rest. <laughs> take it easy. It was one rule that was really kind of coloring my perception that the job was not everything that I thought it would be. That's really the, the importance of a, a structured um, self-assessment like we have on widgetsthebook.com is that people deliberately go through and methodically answer the questions and then get that, that feedback that tells them not, not just their overall number, but where they stand on each of the 12 rules. So you've got this assessment, you're starting to work on all this, you know, kind of get all this research into employee attitudes and work habits, and maybe you could kind of sum up some of the, you know, what, what you found out about, you know, the good and the bad of these different areas by, by looking at all that. The short version is that the good is when you work for a company that appreciates that you're human, therefore you have limits, that you're individual, and so you're going to bring something different than the person before you and the person after you, and you should be looked after as an individual, that if they look out not just for your engagement but for your happiness, that you're going to give all you've got, your greatest ideas, you'll work hard when it's, when it's needed, to when you're trying to get a project out the door, that you will be loyal to the organization, that you'll speak highly of it on Glassdoor and to your friends. And the converse is, if you get yourself into one of these people-chewing machines, they tend to be larger corporations where you're more likely a number, um, where you're a human resource, if you will, or you're treated like a widget, uh, then you're just going to do the job. And you'll do it for as long as it suits your purposes, but you'll be looking around for someplace else to go. And you might have a great, a great ideas that you might have had if, if they treated you like a real person and really looked after you, it just might not even occur to you. You might not even realize that there was an idea that would have occurred to you at a better job. It just simply, that spark won't hit. And you'll never come up with that, that new pharmaceutical or that new process improvement because the job is kind of sucking the life out of you instead of breathing life into you. 
Well, not, you never realize how bad it really is until you finally leave a bad job, and then that realization hits at how much it was just sucking the life out of you. For whatever the one of those maybe 12 areas that was really a problem, if it was work-life balance, you're working too many hours, or you know your opinion didn't matter, or you were getting paid not enough, you know, where the money wasn't really a part of the equation, all those different things you talked about. But I've I've left jobs before, and I thought it wasn't the best thing, which is why I moved on. But man, the day after you quit, you just you it suddenly washes over you how bad it really was. You were kind of ignoring so many different things, uh, you know. And I'm sure people have a lot of those different realizations when they maybe look at these this assessment or they they have those occurrences, right? People who leave that kind of a job will describe it as feeling like they're breathing oxygen again, and they will, in many cases, not recognize until after the fact, just as you said, uh, how much it had sapped them. The problem is that we are um, we're sponges. We do gather a lot of the messages around us. Uh, think of it when you were in high school. You asked someone out, and they said no. Well, that didn't mean you weren't a, you weren't a great date, but you still took it seriously, right? We take rejection. Uh, we take poor treatment personally. It's almost unavoidable. And so if someone, you, you go for a, a pay raise, and like, well, this is all you're worth, or you don't get much recognition, or your manager is always making you uh, fearful of the next thing, ultimately it's going to wear you down. And then you get in a job where your manager says, man, you're great. Yeah, let's see what we can do to make you worth more money down the line. That's a brilliant idea. Same thing. You're a sponge. And you go, hey, you know what? There's stuff I can do here, and surprise, surprise, uh, it happens. Uh, Scott Adams, the the creator of Dilbert, describes this as occurring when he met his editor, that she had faith in his drawings and what he was doing. She thought it was cool, and he said, this is in the very early days, he said, immediately after that, I, I felt like I could draw better. I found that it was coming to me in a better way. Now it's because someone believed in what he was his concept and where he was going with this. Well, and that's really the kind of the real hallmark of, of great leadership is to get those around you to to believe in themselves and to, to do their best work and to to feel like you know what they're doing matters. And so I'm wondering, you know, what, what what's your leadership style like? You know, how, how are you? Is there something unique that you're doing, or kind of given your your history, it's it's a bit different than most people uh, I've had on the show. So, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about your own leadership style. Well, first of all, I would never claim to be the epitome of what I write about in the books. One of the reasons that I that I write the books I do is because I'm in awe of people who do this um, really well. I, I think if my leader leadership or management story was used for anything useful, it might be the transformation that's occurred from the time that I was made in, an editor at the Salt Lake Tribune many years ago and was uptight and obsessed and metrics-oriented and wrote down everything and, you know, newly minted MBA who was going to remake the world of management and was kind of a, you know, I was a, I was a Six Sigma process-oriented, you know, written and turn all the dials in just the right way, and some of the reporters I managed back then could probably tell you some horror stories. I lay back right now. I hire people who are brilliant. Um, I have that luxury in this in this business and with this company that we attract really good people. Um, I know they're motivated. I know they want to do cool stuff, and then it's really my job to help marshal the resources of the organization to let them shine, and in some cases, since they tend to be fairly driven individuals, 
to tell them, I don't want to hear from you over the weekend, or, yeah, leave a little early, or you've been working really hard, go rest. You'll be better to me and to the company and to yourself um, if, if you go home and spend some time tonight, you know, over the, over the evening or over the weekend not thinking about this place. And that sounds like some ways in which you're really impacting your own employee engagement by kind of being really in tune with, I guess, what they need, what your team needs. And, of course, as you do that, it's going to help the company in the long run as well. So you know, engagement is something we talk a lot about in the show. It's really become something that is widely recognized as a huge need for companies that are just not doing enough for. And there isn't that solid strategy in place that they really need for happier employees or more uh, connected employees to really help the company, you know, ultimately reach its goals. So what is it that your company's doing to ensure, you know, that employee engagement really does happen at the, at the level you want it to? Well, I, I, I broke one of my own rules in widgets and I wrote about the place where I work and I did it over <laughs> to some degree over the objections of uh, Larry Schenecker, our president, chief operating officer, really didn't want all the uh, the light shown on us. But there's a cool thing this organization does uh, under Larry's direction, the Summer of Love. And we're based in Minnesota. The summers are really short here, and the winters are long and bitterly cold. If you work at BI Worldwide from Memorial Day to Labor Day, the dress code is suspended, and it's replaced with one line. Don't wear anything that will get you arrested. Now, obviously, if clients are in the house, then we dress up a little bit more. But normally, during the summer, it's flip-flops and shorts and T-shirt, and that's perfectly acceptable. There's lots of parties. Uh, there's free beer. There's uh, every other Friday afternoon. Take the, take the afternoon off in addition to your regular vacation and holidays. Go to your cabin. Go to your boat. Uh, we'll, and, oh, and, and new this year, every Friday, uh, if your dog is well-behaved, bring him or her to work. That breaks a lot of the traditional rules of what it's like to have, uh, you know, what, how an office ought to operate, all buttoned down and, and dress code, and, of course, dogs aren't coming in here. But it really energizes this place. And it's interesting how you get to know a person better if you get to meet their dog and how uh, you go to a, a concert on the lawn and you strike up a conversation that leads to a really good business decision down the line. And it's nice to work at a place that is unorthodox in that way and really on the cutting edge. Well, and it's good to hear you doing that. Uh, you basically are acting like a, Cal- a Southern California company for just a few months, right? <laughs> You're describing was my very first, my very first company. That's how that's what we did: with shorts and t-shirts every day, and everyone had their dogs at the office. Now we had to evolve from that. That was where we started, but <laughs> sounds like a really good program. And especially, you guys are allowing people to go off to their cabins and different things. That that's a that's a whole kind of a different culture where you guys are at. Just by allowing that and kind of putting that in there, that's got to be huge. Instead of people having to take time off all the time, having to, you know, call in sick or whatever, having all these sort of subculture problems around that because everyone knows what they're really doing. You guys just went there and kind of institutionalized it and made it a part of what's cool about you guys. I really like that. Well, the the thing that – the message for a leader – is to consider, well, if you did that for your employees, what would they do? Would they take advantage of it and be lazy and just goof off 
during the rest of the time? Would they goof off during the winter? Would they demand every other Friday afternoon off all the way around the year or always want to bring their dogs into work or, or whatever? Or would they say, wow, thank you. I appreciate it. You're looking out for me, my happiness. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to come up with some really good ideas um, because I feel like I owe it to the place. And you know what? It's getting more and more interesting, and I'm, I'm going to hang around. Now, obviously, being in Minnesota, we can't do that year-round. Right. You wear flip-flops outside in January, you're going to lose your toes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it, and I wouldn't necessarily argue that that's something every company should do. But what every company should do is stand back and say, what should be our thing? What uniquely fits our culture, where we're located, what the industry that we're in, and what would the employees really appreciate and reciprocate back to the organization? How can we make them happy? You know, and uh, I have the privilege of being able to do a, a talk on company culture around the country, and that's one of the big tenets uh, that I talk about is how do you be you? Um, not try to be Apple or Google or you know the company down the street that you think is cool or are you know, better than you or whatever. But how how do you do something that's uniquely you that your your company can rally around and, and really enjoy and will will make people feel feel good about working for your company? And I think a lot of times we forget about that. We get inundated by all this other stuff of what other people are doing, and we ignore what we can actually do that makes sense to, for our own companies. I think that is absolutely true. I think companies also run into trouble if they look at everything as a return on investment. Like, well, okay, if we do that, what's the return on investment? There is a return on investment, but sometimes it's so hard to track that if you want an instant answer, then you won't do it because you won't see the immediate ROI, and then you won't get the return down the line. There's also something to be said for what the intention is. Like, does everything have to be, hey, if I'm not going to do it unless I get something out of it? If your employees took that attitude, then you'd have a very adversarial relationship where they say, well, I'm, okay, I'm not doing it unless there's something in it for me. You want your employees to say, I'm going to do it just because because I feel a sense of obligation to this company. Um, it's a, it's It would be cool to do that here. I feel like they've looked out for me. I want to look out for them. Well, the employees kind of expect the same thing. Uh, from their leaders, that they'd say, you know what, we're not going to worry about the ROA on this for right now. This looks like it'll make our employees happier. Let's just do it. Yeah, and it's softer. It's squishier. We know there's a benefit. We know it's good. But, yeah, you're right. You're not going to have a Six Sigma, you know, the MBA presentation on this is exactly what percentage of engagement we got out of it or we lowered our you know, sick days or whatever. I mean, it, it, it's too squishy for that. And you probably could measure it, but it would take you so much time and effort and money to, to, to do that. It's not really worth it. We just, we just know that intuitively we're doing this good thing and this is going to be good for our company. We can see the tangible, softer, squishier results. Is that kind of what you're saying? You know, there was an organization that I advised a while ago, and at one point they had free coffee for the employees. Now, I'm not arguing whether a company should provide free coffee or not, but at one point this organization had had free coffee. And then they decided as a cost-cutting measure that they were going to take the coffee away and they put it in a vending machine everyone could buy their own coffee. Once having had, first of all, once you take away the coffee, you, you are injecting what the behavioral economists would call loss aversion. You had something and then the company took it away. So you've made an issue of it right there. And then the other issue is how much, okay, so what is a cup of coffee? Let's say someone drinks three, four cups of coffee during the co- course of the day. How much does that cost the company? Compare that with 
how little an employee would have to dial back their effort to cost the organization far more than three or four on-site cups of coffee that day. And so I know in the case of that organization that taking the coffee away, even though they could see how much they were saving on the coffee, it cost them so much more because they made an issue of it and because people remembered, yeah, we used to have coffee and, and now they're, they're stingier with it. And I know that coffee, taking that coffee away was a very expensive move as much as the CFO from that organization knew he was saving on the coffee each year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and you know, there might be some situations where they could explain it or do it temporarily if they really were having a huge problem and they really had to make cost-cutting. But you're right, sometimes those things that are employee benefits really end up hurting you far more in the long run, especially if it's not a temporary measure and it's something that they feel like was a part of their, you know, what was, I guess, not really their salary. It's not really a compensation, but it's a benefit to work, and then you take that away, and that, that's that's really tough. Well, yeah, this doesn't have to be an expensive thing. Uh, it costs nothing to let someone bring their dog to work. It costs nothing right. to relax the dress code. And coffee isn't all that expensive. Right. So I'm wondering, uh, I know you, you do a bit of writing, but uh, is there a particular book you're reading right now that you might share with our audience? Uh, you know, over the weekend, I read uh, Return on Character by Fred Keel, K-I-E-L. And I talked to him uh, briefly on Friday for a column I'm working on for Forbes, where I'm a contributor. Um, fascinating piece of research in there that says, uh, first of all, that, that nearly every senior executive out there, when you ask him to rate himself or herself, um, thinks they're pretty darn good. If you ask their employees how they are, you find wide differences. And those who rate their CEOs and other senior leaders as having the highest character deliver dramatically higher return on assets than those who rate their senior leaders as having lower character, integrity, forgiveness, all those type of, of uh, personal attributes. Uh, don't quote me, but as I recall, it was something like the difference between 9.5% return on assets and 1.5% return on assets between the two ends of the scale, between a, a self-focused CEO who's all into himself or herself and someone who they call a virtuoso CEO. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, a fascinating, uh, like you said, fascinating piece of research. Sounds like a really interesting book and look forward to checking it out. And I'm sure our listeners, uh, those that want to check it out, can don't forget we'll... Uh, List the the book uh, in the uh, blog recap that we do. Uh, you can also find that on peopleg2.com on the blog section. And uh, just kind of one last question for you, Rod. Uh, how can people uh, learn more about BI Worldwide if they want to check you guys out? Uh, the two websites for the book, go to widgetsthebook.com. Uh, you can take the self-assessment, read the first chapter of the book, and also there's a blog connected there where you can see um, when I write something for Forbes or if something gets in HBR or what have you, it's all kind of collected there. Uh, and then the company's website is simply biworldwide.com. Well, Rod, it was a real pleasure having you on the show today. We learned a lot, and hopefully we can have you come back at some point and give us an update on uh, how you're doing and maybe the next book you have or uh, whatever it is. We'd love to get an update. Thanks, Chris. Great chatting with you today. All right. Thanks, Rod. Be sure to tune in uh, next week, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, uh, next Tuesday, September 15th. Uh, my guest will be uh, Robert David, the Director of Corporate and Professional Program for uh, UC Berkeley Extension Program, and possibly one other guest. Uh, until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. 
You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2. 